the Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Jeremy Lickness. Jeremy is a Senior Program Manager for .NET Data at Microsoft. His personal mission is to empower developers to be their best. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, sure. Um, So, before we get into the meat of things, would you give our listeners a little introduction to yourself? You know, tell them how you got started in the industry. Oh boy, how I got started. So I've always wanted to be a developer. I started programming when I was a young kid. I had a, for a lot of listeners, they may not have heard of a Texas Instruments TI-99-4A. That was my first computer. And then I grew up on a Commodore 64. But it was actually interesting for me because, and I'll try to keep this short story boring, but I went to college for computer science and ended up not completing it. We could say dropped out, kicked out, whatever, but I just did not finish college and had sort of the mindset that because I didn't have that degree, I wouldn't make it in the computer industry. So I did a lot of oddball jobs. I had a job at an insurance company as a Spanish speaking claims representative And um, yeah, so that's a a whole story wrapped up in that. (laughs) But let's just say the focus was on productivity. And when my application would break and I realized that IT would just come and type a few commands and reboot the application, I said, why call IT? I can just restart this myself. And IT caught wind of that. They said, well, we noticed you've been hacking around a little bit. Uh, (laughs) You're in customer service. What do you think about programming? I'm like, well, actually, let me tell you, I love programming. Here's what I do. So they said, well, we got a great job for you. Come come over to the IT department. So I did. And the great job for me was a night shift swapping out ink cartridges in massive printers. (laughs) But there there was a light at the end of the tunnel. I uh, wrote some software to optimize the order that the reports came in. So I had to swap the filters less. So that gave me some time to study the language that the mainframe was running at the time. And that segued into a computer job. So that's how I got started. I worked my way up from uh, speaking Spanish and taking automobile claims (laughs) to running printers to writing code. Wow. So, uh, you know, now you're uh, the the program manager for .NET Data at Microsoft. What what is that? What what does that mean for you from like on a day to day basis? Oh, it, it means quite a bit. So there's some very uh, tangible, specific things I do. I work very closely with the Entity Framework core team and uh, on that product and just understanding how we can continue to evolve that, make that better, and uh, address uh, how we prioritize releases that come out for that. I work with the .NET for Apache Spark team, so that's the the big data, and uh, again, similar set of roles. And then the broader perspective that's less tangible is really looking at the all-up experience of working with data in .NET, and that can be everything from APIs to connecting the SQL Server, et cetera. So one of the focus areas I have right now, for example, is GraphQL. 
And what does that mean for me? It means just understanding what the ecosystem looks like, what the experience looks like for .NET developers, and then figuring out ways that we can make that experience better if, if there is a need. Sometimes there's not a need. Sometimes people say this is exactly how we want it to be. But day to day, I'm thinking about data. I'm thinking about as a .NET developer who has to connect with data, can you find the resources you need, the tools you need? And if there's a way that we can, through our documentation or through our tools, make that experience better, then I go out and make a case for that and show that there is a problem to solve, kind of get the, the feedback. And uh, once we have a case that says, yes, this is a problem, here's the evidence that customers have that issue, then we go to correct it and baseline it and measure it and see how we're, we're doing with that. Excellent. The three of us are primarily line of business application developers, historically a lot of SQL Server backend, usually picking up something like EF or EF Core, uh, some kind of ORM to help us facilitate the connections to our databases and, and persistence layers. I really enjoy a lot of the connectors in EF Core as well. Now include things that maybe you wouldn't think of that an ORM would handle. Something like a Cosmos DB or, or non-relational data. Yeah, that's actually a very interesting one. Is uh, When I describe Entity Framework Core, I have to say it's an object relational, and I put the relational in quotes now because uh, Cosmos DB is non-relational. Now it makes it easier for us because it works with a SQL dialect. So we've got uh, some leverage there because the other providers for EF Core are all relational SQL dialect providers. But it, it is, at the end of the day, the idea is... Let me work on a set of domain classes that make sense for how I'm architecting my software application, my compute, and don't force me to artificially modify, manipulate, or change how I approach that model just because of the constraints imposed on me by the database. So hopefully we can provide a way to take those domain objects and then naturally interact with them and have most of that persistence abstracted. But one of the philosophies of the team is that we know that you can only do so much, right? Sometimes you have those edge cases. So it's very much a piece of the philosophy behind EF Core to allow you to get underneath the hood so you can access the database object, you can get down to the raw connection so you can tweak it when you need to. But for that 80% set of scenarios, hopefully we provide you a set of conventions and building blocks that that make it just work in an easier way than if you're, you know, handwriting SQL code or using data transfer objects at a, a raw level and mapping, you know, properties and dictionaries and, and all the fun things that happen at a low level database programming. So I know with older versions of EF, there's like the, um, I forget exactly what it's called, but like a SQL connector. And I assume there's like some kind of Cosmos DB connector. If a company that I was working for, or if I had a personal project that needed to connect to Bob's basic data source, <laughs> which is like a custom, I don't know, whatever. Um, is there any kind of easy way that I could adapt a, a connector or an adapter to that data source uh, and still use uh, EF? So I would struggle to say there's an easy way to do it. So we have this provider model 
And providers are sort of like facades, right, to different database backends. But I say sort of because they have to understand the nuance of each database. So SQLite has a slightly different dialect than SQL Server. And so you can't just assume you're going to be able to swap them out transparently because there's limitations that, you know, this thing supported at SQL Server, this isn't with SQLite. So the provider has to do quite a bit of work. It does everything from taking, for example, a link query and figuring out how to materialize that in the dialect of the database that you're talking to. And if I say something as simple as date is less than five days ago, using like date time now add days negative five, that will translate to something very different for SQL Server and for SQLite. And so the provider has to be smart enough to walk the expression tree that's created as part of the link query, translate that to the dialect, but then its job's not done, right? Because once it passes it to the server, then it has to understand one of the millions of ways you might project the results. The easy way is you have an entity that sort of correlates to what's in the database and you project the the values onto that. Uh, But you might use an anonymous type. You might just be pulling off certain properties. You might even map it onto a different CLR type. So there's a whole materialization step. And all of these pieces are part of the provider model. And EF Core is set up in a way that we try to have common services. Like there's a relational provider that the specific providers are built on top of that provides kind of the core services that are common across all relational, and then you can override it and tweak it. But if you want Bob's database to be supported, you find the provider that looks the most like Bob's database. You fork that, and then you start going through and tweaking and making the changes to the dialect you want to. Um, If it's a SQL-like dialect, it might be fairly straightforward. For something like a Cosmos provider, though, it can be months of effort to to make that translation. So the fortunate thing is everything EF Core is open source. We do everything out in the open, and uh, that's enabled uh, people outside of Microsoft. So we maintain SQL Server, SQLite, and um, Cosmos DB providers, but there's MySQL providers, there are at DB2 providers, there's Oracle providers, and different organizations and, and companies actually maintain those those providers. And then uh, on top of all that, of course, we have changes from version to version. So as a provider too, you have to stay on top of kind of what those changes are so that you can build that support into your provider as it evolves. Okay, so it's it's possible, but give it to the intern and then walk away. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Possible, but not probable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were talking a little bit uh, just before we started about um, whether or not we should sort of put a abstraction layer on top of EF Core, you know, using like a repository pattern or something like that, or just programming directly to the core is in you, you were sort of saying that this might depend. And so can we get into, should you put that repository or not uh, question? Sure. So I'm a, a huge fan of you aren't going to need it. Right. And I feel I've come across before I was at Microsoft, I was in consulting for 10 years 
And I came across a lot of projects that suffered from uh, a lot of ritual and ceremony when you had multiple layers and often 80% of layer X, the data access layer was just a pass through, right? It just took something translated pass through, but it was still a gesture that I had to make. Every time I added a new property, I had to visit all the layers of the stack. So my opinion on repositories is once you need them, implement them, but it wouldn't be something I go to out of the box. And, and so why would I use a repository? Uh, one of the reasons is testability. And so I can test a DB context, which is sort of the fundamental unit of work in EF core. So as long as I can test that, uh, I would question if there's value adding a repository. Maybe I don't want to take a dependency on Entity Framework Core um, in another project uh, for whatever reason. So that's a, another reason why I might add an abstraction to that. But I would say as long as I can test it and as long as everything's functioning, I'm good. The instant I hit a place where I have to do something more complicated because of exposing the internals, if you will, of EF Core, then maybe I do want to abstract that. Another reason for a repository, the common one people think of is if I swap out my backend provider. It's very uncommon that I've seen someone actually say, okay, we're going to go from EF Core to, to something else. But there are customers who, for example, use EF Core and Dapper. And we're very fine with that because Dapper is very lightweight and it's not necessarily a direct compete with with EF Core because EF Core provides things like concurrency detection, change tracking, et cetera, that you can use. But for some of the, the queries and just getting data quickly, you can use Dapper. So in that case, using something like a repository would give you that flexibility behind that query method of which provider you wanted to go with, if you will. Uh, the other thing that I think is is interesting that isn't as common that people run into, but I've found works really well, is this concept of building the repository when you have a client server application so that you can get code reuse out of that same interface, whether you're on the client or the server. And the server implementation basically implements query async as going out to EF core or to the database and executing that query the client representation of that is simply going to a web API calling REST or GraphQL or something else, but it gives you a very consistent model. So you're using the same entities in the same interface and you make it very easy as a developer to know exactly which methods to go to, but your implementation is entirely different. One of them spinning up a client, making a call, getting results. The other is talking directly to the database. So those are some examples of scenarios where I'd say, okay, there it makes sense, but I don't go to it right out of the gate. Yeah, that, that last that last scenario is kind of like the the impetus of my my question before was because you know if you if you could have like a uh, an API provider to connect to a web API instead of you know because then you could have just EF and you know treat your link and it would just call the API and do magic. Yeah. So so I went down a rabbit hole. Um, I have a, a project. You can go out there and see it on GitHub. It's called Expression Power Tools. And a, a part of it, I think, is, is usable and I will take to completion, which is basically making it easier to walk and inspect expression trees. So I wanted to learn expression trees inside and out. And this uh, sort of iterates across expression trees, helps you flatten them out, lets you do comparisons, and it just makes it easier 
to work with. The the part that was more the rabbit hole was I said, what if I could in a Blazor client app spin up a client DB context, write a link query, and just have it work. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> I got got to a point where it was actually working, but the the complexity of serializing an expression tree and rehydrating it and attaching it is uh, is something else. Um, I'll, I'll just put it that way. So the the question this has come up before is: Could we have a Entity Framework client that looks just like Entity Framework, runs on the client, and just proxies to the server? And the answer is that is a possibility. the The question the teams mulled over is: What does that implementation look like? Right. Because what if you need to get to some of those database-specific conventions? What does that look like? And is a model like what I approached, which is a REST API call that has a serialized expression tree, which could have security implications, right, that go with that as well? Or is it using something that Entity Framework thinks it's talking to a database and we take that wire protocol and we actually just marshal that as a proxy through an HTTP tunnel. So there's a lot of interesting concepts there. I haven't seen the demand for that strong enough to say, hey, let's go out and and do that. But it's definitely something that the teams talked about and and looked at and uh, a fun project that that I uh, attempted to tackle early on. And just remember, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Exactly. Yeah, like, I was, I was going to say, for me, it's like a Jurassic Park problem. Like, you know. <laughs> Clayton <laughs> likes to do the, the complicated just for funsies. But uh, if you're, if you're going to make us all think in expression trees, then some people are going to get angry with you. Yeah. Well, uh, so here's an interesting one for you. Do you know what the two most requested EF Core providers that don't exist are? No. What, what, what are they? So number one, based on a, a survey we uh, sent out, Number one is a MongoDB provider. Number two is an Excel or CSV. <laughs> Don't do it. I could totally see that. So Mongo, do we not sort of have that now with Cosmos DB being able to use the Mongo API? Or, or is it a completely different, is that two different? This is a perfect example of what, my role entails, right, is when someone asks for MongoDB, I have to say, what does that really mean? So what about EF Core do you like that's not provided? Because MongoDB has an SDK for .NET, and it has various features. And so the question becomes, is it the conventions and, and uh, APIs that come with EF Core that you want to reuse? Is it a question of wanting just to be able to do link to MongoDB? So is it really a link provider people are asking for and calling it EF Core? Is it change tracking concurrency? So there's very good questions that that come into that. Now, obviously, is it something we could do? Well, yes, Cosmos DB laid the groundwork for that. But the question is, should we do it? And that is where I would go out and talk to customers who asked about MongoDB and try to understand like what's missing from what you have today. If you install the MongoDB SDK, what don't you like about it that EF Core could could fill that gap for you? We mentioned GraphQL a couple of times as well, and and wondering what that looks like from from your point of view. What is it from from day to day? What is it managing? What is it like working with the EF Core team, working with GraphQL folks, and, and what are we talking about when when we're talking about 
all of that under the data umbrella? Yeah, that's a, a very good question. So it's a very high level is, is GraphQL experience. So then how do you get from that to actually something tangible you do? And for me, it's been talking to a lot of developers. There's teams at Microsoft who use GraphQL. There's teams, there's customers who use GraphQL. There's just random developers. One of the things I did was a Twitter survey and got contact information and did some interviews over email with some developers. But for me, it's understanding why, what's the motivation to use GraphQL? What are the roadblocks? What are you running into, especially from .NET, that keep you from getting your job done? And then also looking at what are the resources available out there? So in a you know, one of the things I love about, you know, we can call it the new Microsoft or Microsoft today is I know 10, 15 years ago, everything had to be born in Microsoft, right, and packaged. And one of the things that we're very focused on is working with the community and not necessarily replacing what's out there. So part of what I'm doing is talking to the maintainers of different GraphQL libraries and understanding you know, what their roadmap is and, and what they're looking to solve. And there's there's several packages and frameworks out there. And it's really understanding those packages and frameworks and what developers are leaning towards and how the experience is. And helping might mean actually working with maybe someone from the EF core team contributes to one of the existing packages. It doesn't necessarily mean we're building something here at Microsoft. So day-to-day... What I've done is, is talk to a lot of people, tried to understand some of the limitations, and then figure out a, a plan to see what we can do to, to help out with that. I mean, fortunately, there's a pretty strong ecosystem right now. There's some pretty solid packages out there, so people are getting the job done. But it's really interesting to me to see the ways people use GraphQL, their motivations for using it, and uh, what their, their success stories are. So along with some of that uh, collaboration kind of brings us to uh, Apache Spark um, and .NET for Apache Spark. Uh, could you give um, our audience who may not be a little bit familiar with Apache Spark what, what sort of that is uh, and then what really is .NET's, .NET for, for Spark um, really enabling? Sure. So the uh, Spark is a distributed engine for analytics. And what that means is it's a way to scale out regardless of how much data you have, whether it's petabytes, terabytes, or there's probably some word that has bytes at the end of it that means even more data than all of that. But it's massive volumes of data, more than gigabytes. Uh, it doesn't have to be, but obviously that's, that's the reason for the scale. And the idea is you can f- perform different types of operations to get analytics from, from your data. It can be something as simple as aggregations. It can be uh, something as complex as uh, abnormalities, like automatically analyzing data and finding outliers and edge cases. Uh, there's, I actually had no clue about this term, but uh, I think it's called K-norm clustering, which is a machine learning term, but it's a, a way of taking different values and figuring out how they correlate to each other. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I do, when I demo Spark, one of the demos that I set up is taking a ASP.NET Core docs repo, pulling in all the text from that repo, 
and doing something called inverse document frequency, which is a way of basically saying it's not good just to count how many times a word appears because the word the or a or <laughs> and it's going to appear a lot. So the concept is if a word appears a few times across all of documents, but a lot of times in a specific document, it's more important. So if I'm talking about network routers, I may not have network routers in all of my documents, but the one that's focused on it, it appears higher. So by computing that frequency, you can surface what is an important term. And then you can do things like take a bunch of documents that may not be categorized and based on their important terms, figure out a correlation between them and auto-categorize groups of documents. So that's that's an example of a, a path that you can go down. Now, Spark itself is an engine, and it ships with some language support. You can use Python. You can use uh, Scala, Scala, Scala. I'm not sure the right pronunciation. You can use Spark SQL. So if you know the SQL dialect, you can manipulate that. But what was lacking was .NET support. Why .NET support? Well, if I'm a developer tasked with implementing a Spark engine, and I'm a C-sharp developer or F-sharp developer using you know, a, a .NET language, do I really want to have to learn Python or Scala just so I can run my project? So that's one of the things it does is it provides that support, but it also then allows you to leverage existing .NET projects. So for example, I can create a Spark job that interfaces with the Spark API and does things, but then I have my favorite library that pulls out stop words, words that just aren't important. And I can just include that and, and run with it. So that's one of my motivations for using .NET for Spark is to leverage existing Mindshare that I, I have, and I can pull those projects in. Um, I can interact with ML.NET. So if I have some great data models there, I can use .NET for Spark to build up a set of data that I can then hand off to ML.NET. But that's the philosophy behind it, is making it accessible to .NET developers and doing it in a way that you can take existing examples and easily translate them to .NET if you need to as well. Maybe some personal news as well. I think you have recently started a new podcast on a topic that is uh, perhaps a little personal to you and yourself. Do you want to maybe give our, our listeners uh, a brief introduction as to what that is, why that is? Sure, absolutely. So the podcast, and I actually came up with a domain name that was easy to remember for once, but it's youmeandpd.org, youmeandpd. And a PD is for Parkinson's disease. So it was Interesting. I joined Microsoft uh, about four years ago as a cloud advocate. And on that team, got to do some awesome things, uh, travel the world, uh, attend some pretty major conferences, and work with a lot of developers. One of the things I wanted to do is have more impact on what we're doing, not just carry the message of, of the product management groups, but actually influence the products themselves like I'm doing with .NET for Spark and um Entity Framework Core. So I looked for a new role. This .NET data role came up. So on a Tuesday, I was offered the role for the .NET data PM. On a Wednesday, I was diagnosed with young onset Parkinson's disease, which in a nutshell, there's not a, a lot of understanding of, of why the disease is caused. But basically, the main thing that happens is your cells that produce dopamine die 
dopamines needed to send signals between nerves. And so you start getting sort of short circuited. So for me, for me, the symptom was a tremor in my left hand and I started having difficulty typing. Uh, the good news is uh, with the diagnosis, there's some pretty advanced treatments. There's a lot of knowledge on how to slow down the progression. It's not curable today, but it can be uh, slowed down. And so I tapped into those. I was able to get most of my typing back. I'm really not limited very much right now. That will change over time. But uh, one of the things that was interesting was my wife suddenly came into this new role of, oh, I've got to be concerned for my husband and watching for symptoms and helping him, uh, you know, with medication and everything. So she became a care partner. And as she was searching for resources, she was like, I can't find anything that's really from the perspective of both the person with the disease and their care partner. And so we decided to launch a podcast and just have candid conversations with each other about the experience to, to help other people. And it's been pretty exciting because I've had a lot of newly diagnosed people reach out to me and they've connected through the podcast and I've been able to give them advice. Uh, you know, it's interesting. It affects people different ways. Some people are devastated by the diagnosis. Some people go into denial for years. I know when I found out, I, I said immediately, I want to become an advocate Everyone said, be careful about telling your employer. But I said, no, I'm, I'm not going to hide this. And Microsoft has been incredibly supportive of this. They actually do a lot for accessibility and for coming up with technologies to help people who have limitations. You know, that, for example, if I can't type, you know, what's my voice to text kind of options, things like that. Yeah. So, so that was uh, worked out really well. And then the other ironic thing was that, so Tuesday, job offer, Wednesday, diagnosis, Monday, campus shutdown because <laughs> of COVID. So 2020 was um, like for many people, just not not the, the greatest. There were exciting things like I love my new new role. But um, yeah, that was it was a crazy week. In fact, I have not been in the office with my team since I was hired onto this new role. Wow. I can't even imagine um, that's fantastic, though. I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear all that you're able you've been doing and been able to accomplish there. Yeah, it's been a, a fun fun journey, and it's opened my eyes to be more aware of situations other people are in and experiencing. And and maybe I took things for granted a little hmm. too much. So I'm I'm thankful for that opportunity to uh, improve my empathy, if you will. Hmm. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. What uh, sort of sort of beginning to wrap up with um, what what sort of resources might you point you know our listeners to who are looking to use EF Core or can kind of bring that into a project uh, or get started with .NET for Spark? Those are two different topics, obviously. But right. are there particular resources that you might kind of call out? So. I am going to call out our docs at Microsoft. So docs.microsoft.com slash EF for EF core. And I should have the Spark one memorized, <laughs> but uh, I don't. But if you do Spark and search on docs.microsoft.com, you'll come up with Spark. But, you know, one of the things, and, and this again ties back to my role, we're, we have been revamping docs continuously as part of EF core team and Spark team. And the idea is we should have something for everyone. If you're an advanced developer and you're looking for compl complex scenarios that you need to understand the configuration, 
that should be available. But if you're brand new, we should have a experience where you can just walk through and do file new and, and get it done. And I would point people there because if those are missing, I want to know about it. It's an open source document repo and people can submit issues. We also accept pull requests. So if you have, you know, changes uh, that you think will improve that, you can do that. But but we want to know um, there's we have learn modules, which uh, I'm looking into seeing uh, how much coverage we have there and if we can do uh, any improvements or add any additional modules. And then, of course, uh, you know, there's third party that I can't endorse specifically just because I haven't been through the courses. But I hear great things about like Pluralsight courses. J- Julie Lerman obviously is known as a uh a luminary in the EF core community and uh, has highly acclaimed courses for that. Uh, the John P. Smith uh, just released a book that uh, is uh, in detail for the latest EF core. So there's, there's some great resources out there and we actually try to link to those resources from our own documentation as well. We're, we're not trying to just keep you on the, the docs.microsoft.com site. I just want to back you up on the Microsoft Docs and EF Core specifically. Definitely, I've, I've used those a lot. And But the documentation push in Microsoft has not only been excellent over the last few years, but it's re- you guys are really doing excellent work. I love that feedback. If I could get that every time, like, can I come <laughs> on again? If you, no, seriously, it's, it's a, a huge team effort. A lot of people at Microsoft working on that. We've definitely come a long ways from you signing up for an annual subscription, getting a binder with 500 floppy disks in it and installing those for the, the help documentation. So really appreciate that, that feedback. And I know the team does too, because that is our number one goal. Again, my job is you're a Python developer who just landed a .NET role and you want to go find resources. How can I get started? and connect with, with data, I want to make that as easy as possible. So it's it's great to hear feedback that we're moving in that right direction. What has been helpful in your career that you might share with our audience for people just getting started or maybe looking to level up their own careers? Yeah, a few things for me. One of them is um, really focusing on my goals and not letting people tell me what I can't do, hmm. but listening to the people who tell me what I can do. Um, I was told that there were a lot of things unavailable to me without a college degree. And had I, I listened to that, um, I would have been in a very different place. And I sort of did early in my career. But then once I worked my way into the position, I learned that, um, you know, set goals, go for those. But a huge, huge help for me has been finding mentors. And looking at other people who have been successful in their career or maybe pursued a type of career that I'm interested in and connecting with them and just learning from their experiences. And, you know, definitely keeping my mind open to diverse possibilities. You know, when I was looking at a new role in Microsoft, I looked at marketing. I looked at, you know, some of our consulting arms. I looked at a I, I've never done, I've done marketing for my own businesses, but not as a role in software development. But I, I looked into it because I wanted to have different possibilities and, and options. But even with that, it wasn't me on, you know, Bing or Google doing research, right? You Bing it and then you Google it. 
but um, it was really reaching out to people in marketing and having coffee or lunch or Zoom chat and uh, Teams chat <laughs> and uh, then uh, connecting and, and talking about their experiences to, to understand that. Um, it's, it's actually that that's been the biggest, I think, influence on my career is, is having mentors to to help me avoid mistakes before I make them. And I still make mistakes and I learn from them and I move on. But have, having those mentors can can definitely help open doors. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, where where can our listeners go to follow you and uh, sort of keep up with what you're working on? Sure. So I have this very unique branding style for my my online presence. I have a Twitter account that's called Jeremy Lickness. <laughs> so and it's uh, Lickness without the C, not Likeness without the E. So it's L I K N E S S. But uh, my Twitter is where I have just a focused technology stream. I try to share blog posts and and links to different resources there. I have a blog that is creatively named blog.jeremylickness.com. <laughs> uh, if people want to connect with me professionally, I have a LinkedIn profile that's LinkedIn slash in slash Jeremy Lickness. And uh, th- those are probably the best ways. And my Microsoft email, I am very happy to share that that is jeremy.lickness at microsoft.com. And I am open to people reaching out and connecting. My GitHub repo is also Jeremy Lickness. I do a lot of small projects. Like if I'm figuring out something or if I someone has a question that has a complicated answer, I try to build a project and publish it as a repo so that they have that example there. So I'm sure we're all thinking it, but you're like virtually impossible to find then, huh? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm anonymous on the internet. If uh, you, you want to dig up dirt on me, good good luck. Good luck finding me. Fantastic. Have we missed anything? Are there any other items that you wanted to be sure to, to get out there? Um, this will be totally random, but I just wanted to share that uh, if anyone's into astronomy, I just took up a new hobby of astrophotography and I got a telescope that takes deep sky photographs. I've taken pictures of galaxies and nebula and I learned very quickly. It's not just point and shoot. There's very (laughs) complex processing and algorithms. Like you might take two hours of exposure that results in 600 frames of photographs that you have to sort and filter and align and do things with. So anyone interested in that, uh, reach out to me. I'll share my resources. I don't have easy to go to links for that, but uh, very excited about that. And uh, yeah, so just wanted to throw that out there. That's my new uh, non, well, it is kind of technical, but not uh, C-sharp related, we'll say. All right, Jeremy, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It was awesome. That was Jeremy Lickness. Jeremy is a senior program manager for .NET Data at Microsoft. His personal mission is to empower developers to be their best. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. <laughs>